we're going to take and turn our Bibles to the book of Acts tonight. We've been walking through this overview series for quite some time now, taking a book of the Bible each night, beginning way back in the book of Genesis, and just trying to provide some basic nuts and bolts information uh, about that particular book to sort of increase the accessibility of each biblical book that we've looked at in each of these Wednesday nights. You receive an overview, um, uh, some notes each Wednesday night when you come in. You see a lot of information there tonight. Don't panic. Most of that information is just for your personal study. A lot of you um, have been collecting these overview notes through these weeks of our study and uh, sort of filing these away as study helps for your personal studies. I find that if you can begin to understand the chronology of the book of Acts, you've pretty well got a handle on the chronology of the New Testament. It's not necessary that you understand the historical chronology of the book of Acts or even the historical chronology of the New Testament to access well uh, the book of Acts or the New Testament. But if you're one who has interest in such things and appreciate uh, some uh, inside knowledge as to how the New Testament's history is unfolding, what you see under Roman numeral 2 and 3, you might find beneficial, and you might tuck that away in your Bible or in your study notebook and keep that close and be helped in sort of framing uh, how these events are unfolding as you read the New Testament in your own time. The book of Acts. In terms of outlining the book of Acts, m most might be aware that the book of Acts is uh, sort of framed for us in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. That single verse, that... Luke and telling of the Great Commission is what frames all that is told in the book of Acts. There in verse 8, the Bible says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what you find in the book of Acts is a tracing of the history of the early church as it moves throughout Jerusalem, then out into Judea and Samaria, and then finally out toward the ends of the earth as Paul's missionary journeys are begun out of Antioch in Syria. And then the conclusion of the book, open-ended, as to suggest that the gospel is yet still advancing. And thank God the gospel is yet still advancing. So you have in chapters 1 through 7 an explanation of how the gospel advances throughout the city of Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, uh, a telling of the gospel's advance within the regions of Judea and Galilee. In chapters 13 through 20, a telling of the gospel's advance to the ends of the earth. And then in chapters 21 through 28, a telling of Paul's imprisonments. And even in that imprisonment, how the gospel continues to advance even to the city of Rome. At least it's on the way to reaching what was known at that point of the civilized world. And as we said, the gospel is yet still advancing. I think one of the really interesting and, and maybe more practical ways of access, uh, assessing or accessing the book of Acts is to look at the sermons or the speeches that are given in the book of Acts. If you remember back in our study of the gospel of Mark, we said that Mark's gospel is an expansion on the early apostolic message. Now, that's a mouthful. Let me talk to that for just a moment. The book of Mark is a detailed manuscript. It is an example of an expansion on what would have been an early apostolic, an early Christian sermon. 
if an apostle or a disciple went into a community to preach, it seems that Mark has given us the basic content of their preaching ministry in that city or that region. And that's informed by church tradition and history and that Peter handed down to Mark what he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. Peter's message is captured for us in the Gospel of Mark. So it's an expansion on the early apostolic message. What you have in these 10 speeches or sermons in the book of Acts is a more succinct, a sort of shrunken example of the early apostolic message. Now, when I say that this is a more practical way of accessing the book of Acts, here's what I mean by that. We have the opportunity to look at these 10 sermons, and we're not going to look at all of them in the time that we have together tonight, but we have the opportunity to look at these 10 sermons, examples of preaching in the early church, and deduce from them what are the necessary component parts of gospel proclamation. Sometimes I hear people say, he preached the gospel or the gospel was preached and I heard what was said and I didn't hear a whole lot of gospel in it. When we say we're preaching the gospel or when we sit down to share with someone the gospel, what are the necessary component parts? There's been a lot of questions about this within our bodies. We've talked about a million gospel shares in the next 10 years and how we get there. I have been asked hundreds of times, what constitutes a gospel share? Well, that's a good question with tentacles that go beyond what we can address in the time that we have together. But we are going to see what are the necessary component parts. When we're sharing, if we, if we are fully sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, what some very specific sermons, because they help us to see the gospel being preached in different contexts. Let's look at the first of those sermons in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 14. This is maybe the second most famous sermon preached in the Bible. The first would be Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. But people know a lot, tend to know a lot, about, about uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It was there that 3,000 came to faith. And, and there's this, this effect of the church growing exponentially under Peter's preaching. 3,000 in Acts 2. By the time Peter preaches at Solomon's portico, just a couple of chapters later, 5,000 more coming to faith. So the gospel is advancing rapidly within the city of Jerusalem. What is it that Peter said in the sermon? Verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Men of Judah, and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you, and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk. They're referencing those that spoke in other languages among them. They recognized these men did not have the natural ability to speak in the native tongue of their audience, but they were speaking in such a way that people from a variety of language backgrounds were all able to hear and understand in their own language. They supposed that they were drunk. Peter explains, they're not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. I wish that Peter's rationale for their sobriety were a little stronger, but it's, I guess it's a good case, right? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last day, says, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. 
I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now let's make an observation here because this is a shared characteristic of every sermon in the book of Acts. You'll find that there's either a reference to an Old Testament passage or a reference to the creation power of God. Now, what you'll see here is that when Paul, Peter, or other disciples are preaching to Jewish congregations, they'll begin just with the Old Testament text. They're presuming upon the knowledge of their audience that they know themselves that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that they know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When there's a Gentile audience, they'll begin with, the creation act of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But among Jews, they simply begin with the Old Testament text. So they're rooting their preaching in the inspired word of God. Among Gentiles, they're going beyond that and, and back to the beginning, which is, by the way, not a bad place to begin in our personal efforts at, pro at proclaiming the gospel. When you're interacting with or sharing the gospel with those who have zero knowledge of the Bible, zero knowledge of God, zero knowledge of, of the origins of the world or the sinfulness of man, going back to creation provides us with an opportunity to speak to the inherent goodness of God in creation, that he looked upon creation as it was and declared it is good, he made man, male and female, in the likeness of his image and declared of them they are good. But at the entrance of sin into the world, by the choice of Adam and Eve, everything changed fundamentally at that point. That's a necessary part of our explanation of the gospel. You may not couch your conversation in those terms, but at some point, you're going to have to get to, we are subject to a God who made us in his image. We have distorted that image by virtue of our sin. And the only rescue from that sin is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to deal with that at some point. Here it's the book of Joel that Peter deals with in his preaching of the gospel at Pentecost, preaching to a highly informed congregation. They had come to Jerusalem at Pentecost for religious purposes, with religious motivations. They were informed about Pentecost, one of the pilgrim feasts observed among Jews because of their insight and their experiences in the Old Testament. Each of these sermons begins with a biblical basis. I got to say to you, as a preacher, I find that compelling, that even an apostle, an apostle who writes part of the New Testament, Peter writes first and second Peter. Peter informs Mark as he writes under the inspiration, the gospel of Mark. Later, it's the apostle Paul who writes 13 letters in the New Testament. These men bear apostolic authority that is not enjoyed in the contemporary church. And even those men felt compelled to begin their sermons with a biblical basis. I think it is remarkably helpful in our evangelistic efforts. And listen, 
God is pleased in our weakness and our foolishness often to bless our efforts at sharing the gospel. We, sometimes I feel as though I've done the worst job at explaining the gospel or sharing the gospel. And sometimes it's just then that God does his most powerful work. But I want as best I can to root everything I have to say in the teaching of the Bible. And when there's occasion to do so, I want to help the person I'm sharing with to see with their own eyes that what I'm saying to them is rooted in the teaching of the Bible. Sometimes that's an even more difficult thing for the preacher outside of a church context because people think I have a specifically Baptistic agenda, right? I'm one of those Southern Baptist people, except for handing them the Bible and asking them to read for themselves to see. I have no special allegiance to Southern Baptist life apart from its nearness to the Scripture. I've said this in recent weeks in preaching. When Southern Baptists go left and the Bible says go right, that'll be the moment when I cease to be a Southern Baptist, right? But if you can, if you can help people to see, Romans Road is a great way of doing this. Take them to Romans 3.23 and show them that I didn't say this, but the Bible says that all have fallen and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Take them to Romans 6.23 and help them to see that the penalty for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Help them to see that. Help them to see what, what, what the New Testament methodology for conversion looks like. We believe in our heart in sincerity, Romans 10, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Give them occasion to see that for themselves in the Bible. The personal reading of the Bible can be powerful in the lives of those who maybe until then had never read the Bible at all. Each sermon begins with a biblical basis. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he's been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you see, what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty 
that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, there's a lot going on in those verses. But here is the gist of what Peter is preaching and providing evidence for in the teaching of the Old Testament. And this is an essential part of our proclamation of the gospel. Understand that when I say we have 10 sermons talking about an obligation or responsibility exclusive to the pastor of the church or the preacher in an official capacity. I mean preaching in the sense that we have all been called to do under the Great Commission. I mean that kind of preaching. And I think that's what's in view in the book of Acts as well. Our, our definition of preaching has evolved over time. And there is an element of preaching ministry that is exclusive to the office of pastor. And there's certain qualifications that underlie that. But I, I'm not talking about that manner of preaching. I'm talking about our preaching of the gospel in the highways and hedges that many would come to faith in Jesus. That's what's unfolding in our passage. And an essential part of our proclamation of the gospel must be, it must be the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. One of the great dangers, especially in the Bible Belt, when it comes to sharing the gospel, is that we assume understanding that does not exist in the hearts or minds of those with whom we share. That's what I meant earlier when, when I hear people say something about the preaching of the gospel, and I'm thinking, I heard the message, and I didn't hear any gospel. Because apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there is no gospel. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. The death of Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, that he became our substitute, taking our place on the cross, that he bears the penalty for all of our sin, the shedding of his blood, the perfect, the only sufficient sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sin. That on the cross, the one who knew no sin became sin for us in order that he might bring us to God. That the just one is given over at the cross for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. You cannot preach the gospel without some conversation about what Jesus does on the cross. Now, here's an interesting thing about what I've observed in the book of Acts. As much as our tendency is to focus almost exclusively on the cross, that is, when we're right-headed and pressing forward with gospel advancing concerns, our focus tends to be on the cross. But I have observed in the book of Acts especially a greater focus on the resurrection of Jesus than even on the crucifixion of Jesus, which is not to say that one is more important than the other. But it is to point out that perhaps in our efforts at sharing the gospel, we would be well served to give as much or more time to the resurrection of Jesus as we do to the crucifixion of Jesus. I've tried to allude to personal practices and habits and personal evangelism in the last several weeks just to kind of encourage so much of what I see as a groundswell of personal evangelism in our church. And I've said it, and I'll say it a hundred times in the future. If you, if you come to me with issues of apologetics, with 
philosophical, scientific, or otherwise challenges to the gospel. I am always going to go to the resurrection. Because if Jesus really has been raised from the grave, and it doesn't matter what you think about creation if Jesus is raised from the grave. Jesus affirmed the books of Moses. And the books of Moses say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't matter what you believe or your problems with the presence of evil in the world because Jesus was raised from the grave. My answer to every other world religion and every pushback, you bring me your man who was raised from the dead and I'll give him every ounce of credibility I give Jesus in this conversation. That's the answer, a resurrected Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that we ought to be dismissive of those challenges altogether, but when it comes to a person's salvation, there are more pressing issues than the sometimes nitpicky issues that are brought to our attention. Until we have dealt with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, nothing else really matters. And so that's always going to be the first place I go. Everywhere the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, you have the telling of the death and burial and resurrection. And with regards to questions about what constitutes a gospel share, in its most simplest form, the sharing of the gospel is to tell of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Peter does this in a compelling fashion here in our passage. Now here's a third thing that's a key component part. There is in each of these sermons a call to repentance and faith. In fact, the work of the Spirit is so powerful here in Acts chapter 2 that Peter never gets the opportunity to give an invitation. He is, he is interrupted abruptly. And they ask him, what must we do? How can we remedy? How can we find a solution to this problem? Remember how personal Peter's sermon must have been for many in the multitude. When he's talking about Jesus being crucified for your sin, there's no metaphor about that, right? We, I can say that in a Sunday morning setting. You can say that in personal conversation in a figurative way. Sort of. Jesus does literally die for our sin. But it was their actual personal sin. It was their activity. It was their decision. It was their voice that cried out within the multitude, crucify him, crucify him. It was the decision of many within that multitude to exchange Barabbas, a first century terrorist, for Jesus. In that moment, they made the decision personally. Now, we're all these years removed. Ultimately, Jesus bleeds and dies for the sin of all of us gathered in this room. But there's an especially personal note about what Peter says here in this sermon. In verse 37, the Bible says, When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? And Peter instructed them this way, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He called them to repentance. Now, you'll see in some sermons, there's just a call to repentance. In some sermons, there's just a call to believe or to faith. And in some sermons, a call to both repentance and faith. Now, here's the trick. Saving faith produces repentance in us. So much so that the words become 
virtually synonymous in the New Testament. And there are those that struggle with the close connection between repentance and baptism and salvation here in our passage and confuse what Peter says as to suggest that we are baptized literally for the washing away of our sins. But that's not what Peter communicates in our passage. The problem in that case is with the misunderstanding as to how prepositions are used. And the example that I always go to is this. If I say to you, that Jesse James is wanted for armed robbery, I don't want you to go apprehend him and bring him back so that I can have him do an armed robbery. I want you to go apprehend him and bring him back because he did an armed robbery. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins is to say repent and then be baptized as an expression of your repentance and your faith commitment to Jesus. Give a public expression of your newfound faith and commitment to the one who bled, died, and rose again for you. So there is in the conclusion of each of these sermons a call to the party listening to turn away from their sin and to believe on Jesus. Uh, look next to chapter, give you some variety here, right? So you've got Peter, the arch apostle in Acts chapter 2, who preaches. He preaches again in Acts chapter 3. But then in Acts chapter 7, we have a deacon who preaches. His name is Stephen. He's one of those seven, seven deacons called or assigned to deacon ministry in Acts chapter 6, and I'll have you to know that it's not the pre a preacher, an apostle, a disciple, or a pastor, but Stephen, a deacon who preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts. 53 full verses and a full chapter in the book of Acts. Now, Stephen, preaching to a Jewish congregation, walks them through the entirety of the Old Testament's history. He just walks them through step by step, building the case for Jesus as the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. Jesus is all God ever promised we would have. Jesus is just what we needed for the forgiveness of our sin. Jesus is the King of Israel, the King of all kings, and the Lord of every Lord. Jesus is the image and bright radiance of God the Father. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Passage after passage after passage, Stephen is building the case that all all that God had promised in the Old Testament, he had now fulfilled in Jesus. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Then he starts to do what the country preachers call metal in verse 51. Look there. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you've now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and have not kept it. The Bible says when they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open." And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know likely what happens in the next verses. Stephen is stoned for his preaching of the gospel. Now we could go back through those first 50 verses of chapter 7. And you'd see those same component parts. He bases his sermon in the teaching of the Bible. In the Old Testament. 
He tells them of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, how Christ is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. And with a sharp, severe tone, he calls them to repent of their sin and to turn to Jesus. And I would like to tell you that the conclusion of this episode was that many came to faith the way they did in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, but that is not what happens. In fact, Stephen is rejected out of hand and he dies in a pile of stones just moments after bringing a conclusion to his sermon. That is the harsh reality of sharing the gospel. Not so much in our American context that people are going to literally take up stones, although you may have that kind of experience somewhere along the way. But I want you to know and be encouraged that in some strangely comforting way, when we are persecuted, when there are hardships, when there is rejection, even just the embarrassment and awkwardness of that moment is more than what many of us want to bear with or are willing to overcome. But in some strangely refreshing way, we have the opportunity under those circumstances to do what Paul calls filling up the afflictions of Christ in some special way to join ourselves together with Jesus's work among the nations in advancing the kingdom. I think, I think that's the very thing that Jesus has in view when he says, you must take up your cross and follow after me. Take up the instrument of death. Be willing to bear with the indignity and the suffering and the shame and the scorn and the mockery and even potentially death and persecution by uh, uh, martyrdom. Be willing to join yourself with that to see the kingdom advanced. I know that is so far off. That's so distant for us. It's so outside of our Western experience. It may be difficult for us to sort of put handles on that and get our head around it. And I get all of that. I think the same is true for me. But I think it's worth our examining ourselves and asking the extent to which we are willing to lay down our life for the advancement of the gospel. And I think asking that difficult question may be useful or helpful for us in examining our willingness to, to forego or to lay aside the kind of creature comforts or the status or position that we enjoy if that means the advancement of the kingdom. Even the willingness to forego personal rights and privileges for the well-being of others is a, a gospel call that I'm not sure we always do a good job of implementing. Christians have become far more adept in recent years at insisting on the observance of our rights and privileges than we are at laying them down for the betterment of those around us or to see the kingdom of Jesus advanced. And it's unbecoming of us as believers. There ought to be a real zeal to do that. And in doing so, uh, honor the teaching of Christ that we must take up the cross and follow after him. I want to make sure, and I only have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that, that you're able to see. Let me just tell you, let me, you put a star by the ones that I really wanted you to see that because that, we're not going to have time to get to all these. But I wanted you to see Peter's sermon at Pentecost, which we looked at. I wanted you to see uh, Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. I wanted you to see Peter's sermon to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 because that's the first sermon that you see being preached to a Gentile. Now, Cornelius has some Old Testament understanding because he's in that category of Gentiles known as God-fearers. They're outside of Judaism, but they've acknowledged 
the truthfulness of Jewish worship that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the true God, but by the absence of circumcision, they, they have certain limitations that, that prevent them from being able to be really connected. In some cases, they go through the rite of circumcision and are more intimately connected with the Jewish community, but there's always that separation between Jew and Gentile. That's happening in Acts chapter 6. They're Hellenistic Jews. Some of those would have been God-fearers who had aligned themselves with temple practices on some level, although at a distance. So You've got Cornelius, a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile that has the gospel being preached to him. A, A little different cultural context, but the same basic message. A message based in the teaching of the Bible, a message that is heavy on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and a message that concludes with an invitation to faith and repentance. And then I wanted you to see Paul's uh, testimony or preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. This is Paul's message on his first missionary journey. We're getting to a different disciple, a different apostle, right? I wanted to hear Paul preach. But I really want you to hear what Paul has to say at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. We'll make this our last sermon for the night. In Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31, Paul is preaching in a context that is unique to this sermon. This is the only time that we have the preaching of the gospel in a complete and totally unreached audience. There's no one there, it seems, that has an understanding of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, uh, creation through God. None None of those categories or foundations, no one seems to be aware of that. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 22, the Bible says, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in shrines made by hands. Let's just pause there for a moment. In the first few words, the introduction to this sermon, notice that Paul endears himself to his audience. He's identifying with them on a certain level. Now, he has occasion to preach in this setting because it's kind of a a public entertainment kind of thing. You didn't go to the movies in the first century. You went down to the Areopagus or the city square and you heard whatever philosopher was in town speaking on that particular occasion. And it sort of had a strange criteria for evaluating what was good. They needed to be pleasant in their appearance. It helped if they had a reputation of some influence outside of that city or even within that city. And they they somehow strangely liked it if you could talk at length with flourish and speak in terms and at levels that were over their head. Like if they couldn't understand the speech, it was really, really good. Which I, you know, that may, that may prove to be a positive about my preaching from time to time. It's not always understandable. But in this case, it's not understandable because it's lofty in nature in the case of preaching at the Areopagus or other uh, city settings. That was appreciated and that was public entertainment. People would gather together. So if you were a a speaker and you were in town, it wouldn't be uncommon for you to be invited to speak uh, at a gathering like this. And they happen in sort of an impromptu 
spontaneous kind of way. You're all gathered up. Who are the speakers who are in the crowd? And you'd have your turn at wowing the masses. He appeals to them on the basis of the presence of a shrine built there to an unknown God. Paul sees this, this monument to an unknown God and he says, here's my end. The God that you don't know, I happen to know. And then he begins what I believe to be his gospel presentation. Now, no one in the audience any of the framework to the Old Testament or, or Judaism, so he doesn't begin with a Bible text so much, but he does begin with a biblical principle. And this is still the way we handle gospel sharing today. If you are a part of a short-term international mission trip with us among a people group that doesn't know anything about Christianity or have exposure to the things of God, if, if, if you're with us in South Asia among Hindus and Muslims, we're going to begin right where the Apostle Paul begins. And we're going to say something along the lines of the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made with hands. We're going to establish the creative power of God. Because although we don't think so much in these terms, in most cultures, what comes with being the creator of all things is that you are Lord or bear authority over all things. If you made it, it's yours. You hold possession of it. You bear authority over it. And not only that, but you have an intimate knowledge of the very details of its working. You know everything there is to know about that particular thing. And given the creative work of God, he knows everything there is to know about us and all of our every needs. Verse 25, he continues. Not only is he not made with hands, nor does he live in shrines, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they live. This is a, this is a really important verse to be aware of in light of recent years and constant controversies regarding race issues and the back and forth around race issues. What, what, with, and I'm in great danger here of sounding very cliche, but what's being described in our passage is the fact that there is but one race, the human race. That's what Paul is saying in our passage. Of one blood, God has made all of mankind assigned their boundaries and appointed times where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. And Paul left their presence. Here's a fascinating thing here. I say it's fascinating because it, it's in conflict with our approach to sharing the gospel sometimes. Did you, I said earlier, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. Did you notice in our reading that there's an element absent here? 
Paul doesn't talk to the people at the Areopagus about the crucifixion. Paul talks to the people at the Areopagus about the resurrection. And I think Paul is following my philosophy when it comes to engaging the unreached with the gospel. The, the resurrection is unique to the Christian faith, in every way unique to the Christian faith. And, and the credibility, the power, the evidence, the authority that comes with a resurrected Savior has the ability to put everything else in his place. In other words, Paul plays his best card first. You get a resurrected Jesus before the people. That's compelling. W what is it about this resurrection beyond resurrection that's significant or substantial for us? The basic component parts are here. But the focus for Paul is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I have a theory that there's a certain appeal toward the crucifixion within Western evangelicalism uh, versus an appeal, a stronger appeal toward the resurrection. At the cross, it's, it's there that Jesus is taking away our sin, right? Jesus takes away our sin at the cross. It's a, a beautifully powerful thing that he does. And I, I don't know that we'll ever understand the totality of, of Jesus taking away our sin, all that he experienced there on the cross. What does it mean when Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This, this, this experience on the part of Jesus expressing himself and that the earth beneath the cross would quake and the sky at midday would become black as night. What happened there is just immeasurable. And Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. There's a meekness. There's a gentleness about the Jesus who died in our place there on the cross. But Jesus who walks out of the grave, as critical as that is to the taking away of our sin, it validates what Jesus does on the cross. A Jesus who walks out of the grave nonetheless demands something of his people. There's an expectation that comes with a living Lord Jesus, namely that we make ourselves subject to his lordship over our life. A living Lord Jesus requires something of his people, that we would walk in the newness of life by resurrection power. That's where Paul begins. And I think... For, the, for those with whom we share, increasingly unaware of anything whatsoever about the gospel, it, it is a powerful card to play to focus strongly on the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us as followers of Christ. It, it is his resurrection that is the guarantee. It is the assurance of our resurrection. It's the assurance, it's the guarantee of the sufficiency of his blood shed for the covering of our sin. It is the guarantee, it is the assurance of the truthfulness of Jesus' message and the power of what God was pleased to do through him. Aren't you glad, listen tonight, aren't you glad for the resurrection of Jesus and all that that intends for us as followers of the Savior? What I wanted you to do tonight is reflect on what it is that you're going to say when you leave and you go out and you talk kneecap to kneecap and eyeball to eyeball with your lost friend or neighbor or relative or maybe even someone in your home, 
or that person that you work with that you know doesn't have a saving relationship with Jesus and you've been praying for them to be touched by the gospel and you know that it may just be you that God's put in their path to be the bearer of the light that they needed but you're just burdened and worried. I don't know enough. I don't know how to begin that conversation. I don't know what to say. I'm just a little afraid. I I pray that, that you would take account of these examples of sharing the gospel. You may put some things in order and think through these necessary component parts, but along the way, find the gospel courage, boldness by the Spirit, to take the life-saving and life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it the absolute most. Would you commit to do that? Would you leave tonight determined to go and tell someone of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. That is ultimately what the book of Acts is about. I would add to that, and I'm done, I know. I think there's a certain, people ask the question, why does the book of Acts end the way it ends? Because it just tails off. It just, it doesn't have a real end. Like the book of Jonah doesn't have a real end, it just stops. And I think there's a rhetorical function to that. In other words, I think that's intentional on the part of the author. It, it establishes the expectation that the history of the church and the advancement of the kingdom is not over. No longer entrusted to apostles and deacons in the first century, but entrusted to generation after generation after generation, called to saving faith by the power of God's Holy Spirit. You have occasion to go and be a part of the very biblical story that we've talked about in our time together tonight. You need only open your mouth and publicly declare that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who died for our sin and rose again the third day. Now, doesn't that excite you to be a part of what God is doing even all these years later? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the calling that you've placed on the life of every blood-bought believer to go and to tell others of the saving power of Jesus. Embolden us to go. Help us, Lord, to overcome any awkwardness or fear that might otherwise keep us from sharing. Make us bold and confident in the gospel. God, as we go sowing, I pray that you'd be pleased to grant an increase. Grant it so, God, save some, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.